Wow, what a great service this morning. What a great time to celebrate Jesus. And you know what? You've still got the preach to come. It goes to service that just keeps on giving. It's such a privilege to uh, baptize Jeff this morning. Um, we don't only get to celebrate the risen Lord, but we get to celebrate a risen life in him. And I am so looking forward to uh, seeing where you go in your journey with him, brother, and um, uh, absolutely be alongside you as you do that. A real privilege. I want to put out to you this morning uh, one of the great straight-to-the-point questions that the Gospel of Christ gets to ask us, and it's ever more poignant this morning on, in the light of the news from Sri Lanka. It's found in Luke 24, and this is it. Why are you still looking for life in a place meant for death? Now, this question is the question that the angel um, at the tomb asked the two Marys as they enter the graveyard looking for the body of Jesus. It's a question that pulls no punches and requires a response. In a way, this question, if it wants, could sum up the entire gospel message. It's a message that Jesus weaved into every moment of teaching, every conversation, every rebuke, every comforting word, every prayer that he ever prayed or ever uttered on this planet. Why are you still looking for life in a place meant for death? Now, I've just had a few days away, um, some annual leave, and one of the things that uh, myself and Jess did was to visit a place called Oxburg Hall, which is a National Trust. We're in the National Trust. Um, uh, it's a National Trust property just south of Kings Lynn. Um, and in the grounds of this um, hall, uh, this medieval hall, um, is a small chapel. It's a small family chapel. And when you enter, um, around the walls are a series of plaques, painted plaques, depicting the Easter story. And I thought, oh, great. I'll, uh, I'll wander around and, and have a look at those. Um, and as you follow the, the, the series of uh, plaques around the wall, it depicts images of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, being taken down from the cross, and strangely, the final one showing his burial. So I looked around, and in my amazement, there wasn't a plaque showing the scene of the resurrection. The very moment life and hope and joy burst into this world was the same, was for some reason missing. Those following the story around the chapel walls will have been left in a place of death. Without the resurrection story, the rest of the story makes no sense. Without the resurrected Christ, the crucified Christ makes no sense. The cross and the empty tomb confronts mankind 
with the starkest of choices. A choice that has no fence to sit on, it has no soft border, it has no no man's land where we can take refuge. Both death and life hang over the Easter story. Resurrection Sunday gloriously and triumphantly shows us how it ends. Spurgeon called it mankind's in or out moment. This is why we need the resurrection story. So I'm going to make an attempt to paint the last plaque on the wall um, as we look through this story this morning. I've often wondered what it must be like to preach at the coronation of a king. What a huge privilege that must have been. And I guess only a few men in history have had the honour of doing that. To preach on the celebration day of celebration days. But as a preacher, when you get the privilege to preach on Easter morning, the day when Jesus put to death, death, you get to preach on a coronation day like no other. As a preacher, you get to look down from the great gallery of the gospel and narrate on its finest and brightest moment. I remember my dad recounting to me on several occasions um, when on the 2nd of June, 1953, 27 people crowded apparently into a very small room in a cottage in his village, straining their eyes at a 12 inch by 12 inch flickering black and white TV. The only one apparently in the village to catch a glimpse of their new queen. Would it be that this morning we take time to come together, to crowd in and be in wonder and awe again? at our risen and conquering king. One of the things I try and do when preaching from a canonical passage, now that's a passage that has an account in all four um, Gospels, is to be sure that I read all four of them, as they very often differ slightly in their detail. Some skeptics might say that these differences can add to problems around their authenticity. But it's likely the reason that they were left unchanged and included side by side in scripture was that it helped to guard them against any accusation of collusion. These apostles could have quite easily have gathered in a room, pulled all their information together and come up with a polished collaboration of the gospel story. But instead we have this wonderful collection of witness statements that has been breathed on by God and left to us, the reader, to draw from their spirit-inspired truth. The account of Jesus' resurrection across all four Gospels is no exception to this. What we do get, though, sat at the very heart of each of the accounts is this monumental story of God who could not be contained by death, who victoriously hollowed out and humiliated all his enemies and who then rose to take his place on the eternal throne of God.
Hallelujah. That, of course, remains at the very core of the resurrection story this morning. So I've chosen to read this morning from Matthew 28, verse 1 to 10. If you want to find that, it's going to be up on the screen. You can follow it there. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see, see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has arisen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I chose this particular account because... As I read it, I was caught up with this angel. This angel that not only rolls away the stone, but then proceeds to sit on it. A sitting angel is very rare in the Bible. Normally they stand, they tower, they hover, they fill the sky with uh, light and the glory of God. Normally they're imposing and commanding. So to have one simply described as sitting on a stone, seems to buck the trend and demands a question, why? Why did this particular account, in this particular account, did Matthew choose to leave in this detail? Maybe Matthew is wanting to not just place us alongside the two Marys in this extraordinary scene, a scene, by the way, that's both uh, terrifying and bewildering, Hence the reassuring, do not be afraid. But it's as if he's also wanting to draw our attention to the stone itself. It's almost as if, like a painter, Matthew is wanting to draw our eyes towards this stone and say, this is significant in my scene. Firstly, I want to challenge the pictorial myth that when a Roman-built tombstone was rolled away, that it somehow just glides from left to right, somehow like the doors of the Starship Enterprise, and conveniently coming to rest against the stone. A typical Roman-built tomb is thought to have a seal made up of a tombstone weighing around four tons. That's about the weight of a female African elephant. I googled that, by the way. <laughs> this tombstone would have needed the equivalent of four 
shire horses or 20 rather large men to move it. It will have sat in a, a dipped channel about two foot deep so that when it was rolled closed, it wouldn't topple over. To prevent small bands of thieves robbing tombs, um, they designed it also so that when it was rolled back and open, it would fall over, probably crushing a few robbers in the process. This would mean that despite the many pictures out there showing an angel sitting on an upright stone, he would have been sitting um, on one that was turned over and almost certainly broken in two. This now presents us with a superb imagery as this once mighty prison door, death's door, is effortlessly, effortlessly lifted from its hinges and turned over. No longer a barrier, but a mere bench for a royal subordinate to mockingly sit on. No longer resembling in any way the purpose that it was meant to be. It's left instead resembling the lowly, flat, pauper's graves that litter the rest of the common graveyard. This was a successful and orchestrated attempt to humiliate death in the very place meant for death. Death was taken apart on its home ground by a far more superior opponent. Our angel also gets to sit on what has now become heaven's ultimate trophy seat. When I read this part of the passage, it, it brings to mind those sepia pictures of white hunters sat on freshly shot big game. Perched on top of these, these once mighty and ferocious beasts who, have been previous, who would have previously torn them limb from limb. This angelic posture is inviting us to sit with him for a while on the fatally wounded, dying carcass of sin and death. He wants us to take some time to remember that we too have a place reserved on this trophy seat. We too have a share in the victory of what went on that day that we share in the triumph over this resurrection stone and all the spoils that come with it. The spoils of life over death, of power over sin, healing over sickness, peace over fear, joy over grief, and hope over despair. He's saying, come and rest a while on the victory seat of the risen Christ. Come and feel beneath you the reassuring feeling of a battle won. Join me on this stone. Take a front row seat and witness the aftermath of the greatest prison break of all time. He is gone. He is risen. And he no longer keeps company with death. I had the privilege the other day of praying um, with Chris Hall, who is a, a dear friend and spiritual father to me. 
I love him dearly. He was my youth leader, and he married me and Jess 33 years ago. And along with his wife, Christine, saw us loving, lovingly through many life crises. But Chris now faces a battle of his own right now with terminal cancer. And as we prayed for him, he shared that even though he knows the certainty of eternal life with Jesus, that he knows that whether in life or death, he gets to win either way, he openly shared that he still needed to regularly hear the assurance of a loving father. He still needed to sit on the victory seat and feel the presence of hope surround him. We all have need of this seat at times. Perhaps you may even have need of it this morning. Our angel has a, another message to share with us from this stone. And that is that this stone he sits on is the very foundation stone that we now get to set our faith upon. He sits on the resurrection stone, deliberately marking the only place that will not fail when we put our trust in him. The great Lutheran hymn that has found its way into our modern canon of songs and where Bizarrely, we've left off the last two lines, but it declares this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We simply cannot build our faith on anything less than the resurrection stone. We cannot fully understand the cross unless we trust in the empty grave. We cannot move on from the crucifixion unless we first build on resurrection hope. Our seated messenger wants us to know that the very same stone that tried to rob us of life is now gloriously the one that now we get to build abundant life upon. When Jeff was up here this morning, it wasn't just to say, Jesus is now my saviour and Lord, but hallelujah to that. He's also had to go through those doors and stand in that pool and say, I also believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. I do, he answered. Because Jeff could publicly declare that statement as true, he could then confidently bury his old life with its destructive ways of doing and thinking as he allowed himself to be lowered into the water, knowing that he will be raised again as he comes back up to a new life with Jesus. Jeff now gets to build a new life, not on sifting sand, 
but on the foundations of resurrection hope. Jeff now gets to boldly stand on the resurrection stone and declare, because he is risen, my life is now risen in him. Finally, our stone has one last purpose. This resurrection stone that once tried to shut him in, once tried to silence the saviour of mankind, now becomes the very pulpit on which we get to stand and shout, he is alive, he is risen. It becomes the stage on which the message of the hope of Jesus gets boldly and confidently proclaimed. It's the place on which the angel delivers his final message to the weary, the frightened, and the captives of this world. What are you still doing looking for life in a place meant for death? He's saying, yes, stay a while and understand the significance of this astonishing scene. The two lifeless prison guards, the tomb stone rolled away. Look at this place full of dry bones and graves where one day not one stone will remain standing on another. But he's also saying, why are you still here? when life in all its fullness has moved on. This place has now served its purpose. This stone has finished telling us its story. You should be somewhere else right now. You should be with life. You should be with Jesus. In at least two accounts of this story, the messenger at the tomb appears to have an urgency in his voice. Go quickly. Why are you still here? He is not here. Go and find him. The messenger is asking for our attention and our immediate response. The gospel of Christ will always strongly ask for our attention and urgently call for our response. When the angel asks, why are you still looking for life in a place meant for death? He's asking one of the most fundamental questions that cries out from the gospel. Why choose death when abundant life is freely available? This question gets asked in many different contexts and life situations. And mine came one afternoon, 35 years ago, as I sat in the back of a box van on my way to a Christian festival that I'd been dragged along uh, by an annoying, persistent friend. And it was his question to me that hit me like a bolt between the eyes. I can still hear him asking me. He bluntly said, do you know where you're going to? If you were to die in your bed tonight, do you know where you're going to? 
In that moment, it was as if my own stone had been lifted up and turned over. And it was a question I knew demanded an urgent response. And that night, I sat on the end of my bed and I chose life. I said yes to Jesus. Maybe that's a question you still need to have answered this morning. The resurrection story will never stop unashamedly asking each one of us, are you still looking for life in a place meant for death? Are you still stood in a life that will eventually come to an end with not one stone remaining left on another? Are you living a life where nothing really satisfies? Where assurance and certainty are great words, but you never feel you ever get to properly own them. Where satisfaction seems to run out pretty much on a daily basis. And where hope and joy comes and goes with every changing circumstance. Is that really life? Or is it just a limbo-like death? You see, life has risen from this place and now calls us to come away with him. On this Easter day, let's take ourselves off to be with the risen Christ. Let's find ourselves in his company today. Let's choose to live our share of his everlasting life. He is our risen Lord, our triumphant King, our foundation stone, our rock, our hope, and our stream of living water. Why would we not want to be, to live our lives anywhere else? We're going to get Jeff up here to pray for him in just a moment. And we're going to, as we sing our, our final song, if I can just ask the band to just come and join me again. Along with Jeff, I'd love to invite anybody who would love to be prayed for this morning. Maybe you're not feeling you're living the fullness of life at the moment. Maybe you're troubled, maybe you're angry, maybe you're confused, maybe you're hurt, disappointed, or just plain bored. Come and share the front here with Jeff. Take an opportunity to pray, be prayed for. Come and take an opportunity to stand under the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. We get to do that. That's what's in this room this morning. It's not diminished in any way. It's still the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We get to stand under that and ask of him. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Jeff, if you want to come and
join me. Just going to stand here if we can get a few people around Jeff just to pray with Jeff. But dear, let's be family together. Let's come and spend time in the presence of our risen Lord this morning. Let's get prayed for. Let's not leave this place with the same stuff that we came with. We get the opportunity to do that this morning. So let's do that.